Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Riverwood. Uh, my name is Aaron, a teaching pastor here, and uh, it is great to have you on this absolutely glorious morning. Uh, I we got all everything set up, everything was done. We had a little time before the service was starting, so I walked outside and I thought we have made a grave mistake. We should be outside today. So. Y- so the good thing is, if I'm horrible and boring today, at least you get this to look at, and you know I'm going to escape into this great weather. It will be, it will be great. Well, welcome on this uh, Sunday. Uh, I love Sundays. Not only do we get to come and worship, but every Sunday night, after, my family, after Leanne and I get done with our growth group, we have what we call family night. At family night, we make a bunch of really super healthy food, like buttered popcorn, uh, mozzarella cheese stick. Uh, jalapeno poppers, some chocolate candy bars, you know, really good healthy stuff to kick us off into our week. And as we eat this yummy food, we usually engage in some sort of fun activity. Uh, You know, when the Olympics were on, we were watching that together, or maybe it's funniest home videos. About once a month, we watch a movie together. And when your kids range in age from 19 to 10, it's difficult to find a movie that everyone likes. So that's why it's only about once a month. But then we also will uh, play games. And we've got two cupboards full of games. And one of our favorites is this one called Family Fun. It's out of the cranium family of games. So if you ever played cranium, you'd understand a little bit of the concept. You're going to move around a board. But to do so, you have to answer questions in four different categories. There's wordworm questions having to do with words and letters. There's, uh, let's see, there's creative cat where you're like drawing things or making things out of clay or or just having to think creatively. There's... um, um, oh, what else? Data head, which is like trivia, multiple, que- uh, multiple choice questions. Uh, and then there's a star performer where you've got to get up and sing or hum or do charades or, or something. So there's a little bit for everyone. If you got the intellectual, they love data head. If you got the, you know, artist, they like the creative cat or the uh, star performer. Well, one of the creative cat cards is called Zuma. What Zuma is, is at the bottom of the card are three little pictures, and they have zoomed in extremely close. And you can barely make out what it is. And you have basically 30 seconds to get at least two of the three right. And if you don't get two, you got to stay. If you get two, you roll the dice and you get to move on. Well, today, I wanted my church family to play Zuma. And so I've brought some samples for you, all right? So we're going to start easy. As soon as you see it, I want someone to call it out, and we'll see if we get it right. So the first one is? Yeah, good job, strawberry. All right, I was going to feel really bad if I said it's really easy, and you all sat there and were going, uh. All right, all right, so strawberries. Okay, next. Stop sign, good job. Tried to hide that one a little bit. All right, and if you get them wrong, no judgment, really, seriously. Okay, next one. Hair, okay, it's on an animal, any guess? Lion. lion. Did they show the picture? Yeah, okay. All right, so a lion. All right, and last one. Ooh, someone? Feathers, yes. Any guess on what kind of bird? All right, go for it. It's a chicken. All right, chicken. All right, hey, you guys are pretty good at this game. All right. Well, have you ever noticed how life is sometimes like a Zuma? Where, where you get so zoomed in on something that you kind of lose sight of the big picture. If you've ever known someone who's been in love, and actually I should correct that, someone who has been in infatuation, they're engaged in a Zuma. 
Like, he gets so zoomed in on just how cute she is that he kind of misses the big picture that she's a flirt with every other boy around. Or, or he zooms, I mean, she zooms in on how funny he is. And she kind of misses the big picture of his really, really bad temper and how he doesn't treat people well. You can get so zoomed in that that's all you see and you miss the broader perspective. Well, whenever we encounter struggles, trials, difficulties, we often find ourselves caught into a zuma. The, the problem takes all of our image and we can't see anything else. If you've ever had difficulty in a relationship, it could be your marriage, it could be with a close friend, if maybe you're struggling at your job, things are really stressful, or the creditors just keep calling, or you found out the doctor said the health diagnosis isn't good, or maybe it's what happened to a loved one. This struggle, this trial, this difficulty comes crashing into your life, and pretty soon that's all you can see, and you lose the bigger picture. Anyone here know what I'm talking about or am I the only one? Yeah, I see some heads shaking. We all know what it's like because the human experience is filled with struggle. From the moment of birth until our very last breath, struggle is a part of our existence. And when those come, we can sometimes get so locked in that we actually begin to lose our way and lose perspective. A guy named Peter had a group of friends who were going through a struggle. And he feared that they were about to go into Azuma. And that they would get so focused on the problem that they would lose the grand scheme of things. And so he wrote them a letter. And that's what we're going to study. For the next several weeks, we're going to study the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to see Peter's words to these humans that were going through difficulties, that were going through struggles, that were going through trials... And we're going to see what he says to them because I think it's going to help us and encourage us in our day and age. Uh, several months ago, I had the uh, privilege of going to the uh, Global Leadership Summit. And it's this conference that a Willow Creek Church puts on in Chicago, but they broadcast it. This last year, I think it was at like over 75 satellite sites and Orchard Hill Church down in Cedar Falls hosts it every year. And so this was the 22nd year for it. And I think I've been to probably about 15, 16 of these summits. And almost every single year, I walk away with at least one thing that helps me just as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, as a leader, as a husband and dad. And this year was no exception. In fact, Friday morning was one of the best mornings they've ever had. They just had three top-notch speakers. And the third speaker was a guy named John Maxwell. And his quote has stuck with me, and I've shared it with a number of people. And it's this, that everything worthwhile is uphill. Now, as he shared it, we're sitting there in the context of a conference all about leadership. And so you immediately take your mind to leadership, that to be the kind of leader you want to be it's uphill. But then John began talking and he began seeing that this applies into multiple areas of life. That if you want a good marriage, it's uphill. It's going to take work. You're going to have to climb to get there. You want to have success in your job or you want to do well in school. It's uphill. You want to succeed in this new hobby or athletic event. Uphill. You want to lose weight, or get in shape. It's uphill. And then John paused and he said, the problem though is that we all have uphill desires. It's just, we have downhill habits. 
You know, I, I've tried to lose weight through ice cream. I have been unsuccessful. It's a downhill habit. But if you want to have great kids, the downhill habit is just to give your time to yourself. You get wrapped up in your phone or your work or, or your tasks, and you just kind of let the kids fend for themselves. And then you wonder why they turn out the way they do, because you didn't climb uphill. Or, or you want to succeed in your job. You've got this desire of what it looks like, but well, you're, you're cutting corners. You're not putting in the hours. You're, you're doing other things on your computer rather than getting the work done because you're giving into downhill habits. Well, as John was talking at this conference, and he's applying this to all these areas of, of leadership and life, I couldn't help but also take it to the spiritual realm. As a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, I couldn't help but realize that this also applies to following him. Because as a pastor, I've met a number of people that have all these uphill desires. They, they want to know the Bible really, really well. They, they want to have a rich prayer life. They, they want to be super generous. They, they want to be one of these super Christians. Oh, but those downhill habits. Because I have found that it's sometimes easier to open my laptop than it is to open my Bible. I, I have found sometimes that rather than talking to God, I, I just let my friends talk to me through my Facebook feed. That, that rather than go and be generous, I, I'm too tempted to buy that gadget or the new pair of shoes. I, I have all these uphill desires, but I give in to these downhill habits. Sometimes we zoom in on our comfort. And by zooming in our comfort, that's all we can see. And we miss the broader picture of maybe what God's trying to do. Sometimes we have opinions and thoughts of others. And, and we hear them and we want them to think highly of us. And so that becomes our Zoom. And we miss the broader picture of what God says about us. And then we have the issues and problems and struggles that crash into our life. And that's all we Zoom in on. And anytime we begin to Zoom in on these things, we stop our uphill movement. Or it really slows down. But I believe that God knows you and loves you. And he has a far bigger dream for your life than even you have. And he wants to see you uphill. Because at the top of the hill is a view that you would not believe. It is gorgeous. And that view is Jesus. God's desire is to shape you and mold you into the image of Jesus. Because I'm convinced that what this world needs is people who will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. We don't need a bunch of people just coming together, gathering together, calling it good, and we just go about our day feeling happy about ourselves. What this world needs is people who come together to worship, to immerse themselves in the gospel so that they are dispersed out and to go into their workplaces and into their neighborhoods and into their families and their homes and be a blessing there. And we see God change the world through us. But before we can see that view, before we can get to the top of the hill, we have to keep going. But if we allow ourselves to get zoomed in on problems, to get zoomed in on our comfort, to get zoomed in on these things, we're going to miss out on what God really has for us. And so because Peter wanted to write to a group of friends and say, don't zoom in on this. Let me bring you the bigger perspective. I feel like I need to do the same for my church family. To warn us, to caution us from getting zoomed in on these various things. Instead, for us to take a step back, to see the big picture again. Because what I think will happen is as we get the big picture, we're going to find ourselves wanting to keep climbing. And we will endure and persevere and go. And as we do so, God does a deep work in us so he can then do that great work through us.
So let's go into 1 Peter. Before we do, let's pray. Father, these are your people. You know them. Whether they've been following you for 40 years or they're still 40 minutes away from saying yes to you. You know each and every one of them and where they're at in their spiritual journey. And I believe that you have something for them through the words of Peter. That you wrote something through him for a people at his time. And that truth is still embedded there for us in this time. And so, God, we need you to open our ears, to open our hearts for what you want to say. God, I I pray that you would take all my preparation and you would now use it to, to speak through me. That this would not be about what I want to say. This is about what you want to say because these are your people. You know their names. You're writing their stories. And I want to see you write an amazing story so that they get the joy as you get the glory of them becoming like Jesus. And they get to the top of that hill and they can look out and see what you have done. So God, that's why I need you to speak through me, to speak to all of us now. Because we are yours, doing us what you want. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. Amen. All right, if you brought a Bible or you've got a Bible app on your phone, open it up to 1 Peter. If you do not have a Bible, just simply raise your hand up and Miguel will hand you uh, a copy if you need one. Uh, And if you do not own a Bible, we have two translations on the back. Please stop by. They're high quality. I want them to be your everyday Bible. So make sure you stop by and pick up a Bible if you do not have one. All right, now, we here at Riverwood, we tend to walk through books of the Bible section by section, all right? And whenever I do, whenever we start a book like this, I usually like going and doing the background. But Peter, in this case, kind of does it for us. So rather than us setting the stage first, let's go ahead and jump in, and then we're going to see what Peter helps us see in answering our five big W's. All right, so let me read First Peter 1, uh, 1 through 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It's what I typically teach from. 
but this week, the English Standard Version, because of their philosophy of translation, they try to go more for a word for word. And so this is a packed section. And so they went some, for some really like big words. And so other translations would look at that and go, okay, let's explain this a little bit. So if you're like I was when I began this, you're probably going, wow, uh, what did that just say? So let's begin to unpack it. And, and to unpack it, let's just begin right at the beginning. And let's first start with those five W's. Who, what, where, when, and why. All right, first, who. Now, that's easy. Peter. He, he kind of announces himself there at the beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's some question, uh, debate uh, out there as whether or not Second Peter was actually written by Peter. I believe it was, but some people would question it. But when it comes to First Peter... There's no question. I, the scholars are, are so solid. This is the Peter from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is the disciple that, you know, Jesus loved, called. This is the guy who was known for opening mouth, inserting foot. Uh, you know, he just would stumble and, and say stupid things. And then he would also say amazing things, like the passage that Jeff read today, where P Jesus says, and who do you say I am? And all the disciples are kind of looking around at each other. But it's Peter who speaks up and speaks first. Peter just had this propensity to speak. Uh, I remember back in Venezuela, my, Leanne and I were teaching in a missionary kids' school, and we were sponsors of the class of 1998. And in that class, they were a gr great group of kids. But there was one girl. Her name was Andrea. And Andrea is a sweetheart. Everyone loved her, but she talked and talked and talked all the time. She was our Peter. I mean, if we asked a question, she'd be the first to talk. And everyone else would look at her and go, Okay, sounds good. We'll just go with that, right? And it may not have even been a good idea, but because she was the first to talk, she just became the leader. That's kind of how it was with Peter. He would just say something, and I think all the other disciples went, oh, okay, sounds good. But I think this was God's design. Because as soon as Jesus ascends to heaven, they all kind of look at each other, and it's Peter who kind of takes the lead and takes charge. So much so that in Acts chapter 2, this big event happens on, on this Jewish feast of Pentecost. And it causes a commotion. And all these people rush in. And they're wondering, what is going on? And Peter stands up and begins to preach. As you look in chapter 1 of Acts, you see the church was about 120 people. 120 people who believed that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. They just saw him ascend to heaven. They're kind of, whoa, what is going on? And the church begins. And suddenly, Peter stands up preaches about Jesus, and in one day, 3,000 people believed in Jesus. So overnight, the church went from a nice little small country church of 120 to a mega church of 3,000 people, all because of Peter's preaching. But even though Peter had some epic moments, like being the one to say, you're the son of God to Jesus, or, or to preach and see 3,000 people come to know who Jesus is, he also had some struggle. And now, sometimes his struggle was due to his own stupidity. Uh, in fact, if you go into the uh, book of Galatians, uh, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church in a city known as Galatia, or, or I mean a region. And as Paul writes to them, he has to tell them about what happened. Because Peter was actually discriminating against non-Jewish Jesus followers. He was like pulling back from them. And it was hurting their faith. And so Paul had to actually publicly rebuke Peter for what he's doing. That probably made a bit of a Zuma moment for Peter. It probably hurt. It was a bit of a struggle. There was also some struggle that he faced just simply because of God working in his life. 
If you go to Acts chapter 10, you'll see Peter up on top of a roof and he's just praying and and he falls asleep. He's waiting for supper to be made. Typical guy. And all of a sudden, God through a dream begins to change his theology. It was disturbing. I mean, Peter's like, no, Lord, no. And yet God's like, hey, this is what I want. It, It was disturbing. It would have been a struggle. But then if you go a couple chapters later, Acts chapter 12, you'll see probably one of the most difficult moments of Peter's life. Because James, the brother of John, had been arrested and then killed. And a lot of the Jewish leaders were really in favor of this. And so because, hey, because it was a hit, and they decide let's arrest someone else. And they arrest Peter. And it's expected that the next day he's going to die. Can you imagine the struggle that was going on inside of Peter that night as he's in prison thinking his life is done? Now, God miraculously led him out. But still, there was the struggle. I point these stories out so that you realize that as we read his letter, we do not read like some theologian who's writing or or someone who's in academia who only speaks of the theoretical knowledge of struggle. No, we're learning from a guy who's been through it, whether because of his own stupidity or just because of the difficulty of following Jesus. That's why we need to tune in and listen because this guy gets life. And that's why we got to listen because he's saying, hey, I know the struggle is hard. But I'm here to tell you something that's going to help you through the struggle. And the motivation that he gives his readers, whether it was his first readers or us today, is the gospel. And he begins that explanation in verse 3. Oh, before I jump into that, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, I got to answer my other W's. Uh, let's see, what's next? Oh, what? The, the, the what is uh, a letter. That, this is his form of communication, all right? The uh, next part, where is he writing? He says who he's writing to. That's these, uh, he calls them elect exiles, but he says where they're at. They're in uh, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, this is what's known as Asia Minor. Uh, it would be in modern day Turkey and kind of the northern regions of Turkey. And this would be Jesus followers who are scattered all over, all right? And, and keep in mind the heart of, if I understand correctly, the heart of Christianity was still down in Israel, like around Jerusalem and Antioch, but the gospel had spread all over. And they would find out about these different churches and Jesus followers. And so different letters would be written from Jerusalem and Antioch. Now, there's some question whether Peter wrote this from Jerusalem or if he was actually in Rome. Um, But he basically is writing this to a group of people that he isn't around. And he's sending this letter off and the letter is supposed to travel around what is now modern day Turkey. So that's the where. Now, when? Uh, there's a little bit of debate and question, but most people say it was sometime in the 60s. And no, not the 1960s. Peter was not a hippie leading the Jesus movement. Uh, No, this is like 60 AD. And so most scholars, it seems, have settled on about 64 AD. They think Peter died somewhere around 67, 68 AD. And so this is about three, four years before he passes away. And uh, he, he writes this letter. And if it really was 64 AD, you got to understand kind of what was going on in the world at that time. This is in the Roman Empire, and the Caesar at that time was a guy named Nero. Well, according to Tacitus, the historian, Nero hated Christians. So much so that Rome caught on fire. Many people believe that Nero himself actually set it on fire so that he could clear a space to build himself a nice new big palace. But that he didn't want to be the one to take the blame. Because, I mean, who wants a Caesar who sets his own city on fire? So he blames the Christians. And so to punish the Christians, he rounds them up and would, you know, throw them in the Colosseum where they could get attacked by lions. Uh, He would do other really, really cruel things. But probably the worst thing he did was he would dip them in oil 
and then light them on fire to become the torches for his courtyard and garden so that he could go on a walk at night. If this is true, then I would suspect that Nero's persecution of Christians probably became culturally accepted and it became okay to think low of these people because they, the Romans already did not like the Jews. And now you've got these Jews who claim that they have a Messiah. And rather than calling Caesar Lord, they called Jesus Lord. And rather than calling Caesar divine, they called Jesus the son of God. So these guys seem to be against Rome. So we really don't like them. And so widespread persecution begins. And I suspect that's some of what Peter is trying to address. That these believers are living in this area of Asia Minor and they're being persecuted against And man, if you're facing persecution for your faith, it is so hard to keep going uphill, to continue to climb. I mean, you would just get zoomed in on this problem and issue. And it might make you question, is it worth following Jesus at all? That's why Peter's got to write them. And that's our fifth W. Why is he writing them? It's to motivate them to keep climbing. And the motivation he gives them is the gospel, as I said. So he begins an explanation of the gospel in verse three. It's kind of in that second sentence there. He says, according to his great mercy. His is God. He he just talked about blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the his here is God and it's his great mercy. This gospel comes because God wants to give it. It's not because we've earned it or we're really cute or God thinks, oh, it's so precious. No, this is out of his mercy. This echoes some of what Paul says in his letter to a group in Ephesus. Paul writes uh, in the second chapter of his letter, verses four and five. He says, but God being rich in mercy, there it is, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, when we were spiritually dead in our sin, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Both Paul and Peter are pointing out that this gospel is nothing that you can earn. It isn't about anything that you do. It is according to his great mercy. This is something that God does and we surrender ourselves to it. We submit to it. He goes on. He says that this gospel has also caused us to be born again. Yeah, I remember years ago, uh, I was, I think, 14, 15 years old. I was working at the Tallcorn Motel in their restaurant as a busboy. And every once in a while, I would have to work on a Sunday. And so one Sunday, I'm working. And so I've missed church with my family. And all of a sudden, my church shows up, and they're going to do baptisms in the pool at the, uh, at the hotel. And so they all are pulling up in their cars. They're getting out. They start walking over towards the pool. And we're inside the restaurant. And all of a sudden, one of the ladies, one of the waitresses, calls me over and goes, oh, can you believe it? Look at all those born-againers. And I'm going, ah, oh, that's my church. You know, I, I was too scared. I didn't say anything. But she used it like a curse word. Like, oh, those born-againers. You know, and some people, they're like, born again? What in the world does that mean? Well, it actually comes from Jesus. Jesus, in John chapter 3, is having a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus is a Jewish leader. And he's looking at Jesus thinking, man, You really speak, I mean, you teach like no one else. You seem to know God and you do these miracles. You have to be from God. However, his friends, his peers, they looked at Jesus and said, this guy's horrible. He's evil. He's going to wreck everything. We got to get rid of this dude. So Nicodemus is caught in between because his clan, his tribe says, bad guy. And yet he's looking at it going, "Uh, it looks like a good guy to me. So Nicodemus secretly at night comes to Jesus and says, what's up? Are you from God or not? Because the way you teach the the miracles, you've got to be. And all of a sudden, Jesus starts talking about being born 
again. And Nicodemus kind of takes a step back. He's like, wait, what? What? Like, a, a guy has to like crawl back in his mother's womb? Yeah, I mean, you can just see his wheels turning like, this, this is gross. I, I, I thought you were a good teacher. This, this is just weird. And she's like, no, 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 no. You've got to be born of water. You know, when, when a baby's being born, the woman's water breaks. You've got to be born physically. It says you've got to be born of water and you have to be born of spirit. There has to be this rebirth inside. And that's what Paul and Peter were getting at. That you are dead in your sins. But God, in his mercy, brings you to life. You are born again. You're born not just physically. You're now born spiritually. That's what Peter is driving at. You're born again. And he says that you're actually born again to two things. The first thing there in verse 3 says you are born again to a living hope. My Kansas City Royals two years ago made the World Series. And then last year they actually won the World Series. And they still had the core of their team. So there were high expectations for 2016. And then some injuries happened. And then July happened. And they had the worst July of any team in all of Major League Baseball. And then August came. And they had the best record of anyone in baseball. I mean, they were phenomenal. I think they only lost like three or four times in the entire month. I mean, they were just on a roll. All of us Royals fans got a lot of hope. Oh, and then September had to come. I mean, August was so good. They stink right now, all right? Now, they are not mathematically eliminated. You could technically say that we have hope, but it's a dead hope. I mean, come on, it's a dead end. They're not gonna make it. We just need to go back and remember 2015 and the good times. Peter's saying this type of hope, you are born again to a living hope. It's not a dead end. This is living. It is true. And why does he say that? He says this living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus. Imagine what it was like for Peter and the other disciples on that Friday night after Jesus was crucified. They had pinned all of their hopes on this Jesus. He was their rabbi. He was their Messiah. He was everything. And he was going to rule Israel. They were going to get to be like the cabinet. They were going to, you know, have cool, powerful positions. And now he's dead. Everything ended. They zoomed in. They could no longer see the big picture. And then suddenly Sunday came. Uh, One of the women shows up and says, we went to the grave. It's empty. Peter can't believe it. So he and John take off sprinting. Peter rushes inside the grave. There are the clothes, but they're all folded up. Yeah, not just scattered. It doesn't look like someone stole the body. What's going on? And Peter comes back and he reports it to the other disciples. And they're still scared. They've got all the doors locked. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears among them. He's alive. The resurrection of Jesus tells you that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how bad it is, there is always hope. It is a living hope. Because for Jesus' followers, this life is not all there is. And so there's always hope. No matter what the doctor said, no matter if you get fired, no matter how the relationship's going, there's always hope. That is why he's trying to bring this gospel to these readers, helping them stand back. He's helping them zoom out away from their problems, away from their persecution, away from their trials, and saying, guys, there's this thing called the gospel. And in, through the gospel, you are born again to a living hope. But he doesn't stop. He's got to keep going. The second thing that you were born again to is to an inheritance. This inheritance, he describes it in three ways. First, it's imperishable. 
It can't perish. It can't end. It's like a bank account that there's always money there. No matter how much you withdraw, there's always funds in the account. It can't end. It's not perishable. It's also undefiled. It's pure. I think there's something inside of us humans that long for pure things. You know, they they advertise it at the store. You know, 100% pure honey or pure juice. Or even in athletics, you know, you see some athlete, he sets a record and you're just like, wow, that was incredible. And then you find out he was doping. You find out that she cheated. And suddenly the record's tainted. It's not pure. And it gets taken away from them or there's an asterisk put by their name because we want it to be pure. And Peter's saying this gospel, this inheritance, it's pure. It's undefiled. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. I know when you were 16 years old and you were making amazing fries at McDonald's, you earned employee of the month, you were living large. I mean, you were on top of the world. You were on fleek or whatever the cool kids say these days. I mean, it was great, but that glory faded. I'm sorry to tell you, all of it fades. Every accolade you could get Everything you could buy, the glory of your phone or your new car, your new clothes, it fades. Everything fades except the gospel. It doesn't. The same brilliance that was there the day you met Jesus, it's still just as bright to this day. It's unfading. And then Peter, verse 5, well, into verse 4, verse 5, he, he says that this gospel, is, it's kept in heaven for you. And notice verse 5, not only is that gospel being guarded by God, but you are being guarded by God. Peter loves the gospel. He is amazed by it. He's overwhelmed by it. That's why he had the guts in the face of persecution to stand up and preach about Jesus. And that's why he could cling to Jesus even when he's in prison looking like it's going to be ending in death. But not only is Peter enthralled with it, He's got to point out that others are enthralled with it as too. Skip down to verse 10. You see, prophets are absolutely enthralled with this gospel. Can you imagine what it was like for, say, Isaiah? Uh, Isaiah lived 600 years before the coming of Jesus. And, and he feels like God's giving messages to him to give to the people. And suddenly he's like, all right, God's saying, Isaiah, I want you to tell the people that the virgin will become pregnant. And I'm sure Isaiah's going, oh, wait, wait a second. Um, I'm pretty sure I know how babies are made. That, they're going to think I'm weird, God. Uh, oh, and then God says, hey, tell them this baby. He's going to be known as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. And he's pausing like, wait, how's a baby God? And he's going to be called the prince of peace. I'm sure Isaiah's going, oh, okay, a baby is a prince. And then he's going to be known as everlasting father. And now Isaiah's like, there's no way I can say that. They're going to think I'm a fool. They they were trying to peer in, understand this gospel. They wanted to understand what is this. They're peering in. And when they realize that it is God saying, God the Son is going to leave his throne, come to earth, take on human form, live a sinless life, but go and die a sinner's death, the prophets stop and go, whoa. Not only do the prophets, though, peer at this, He says even the angels, very end of verse 12, even the angels long to look into these things. Because the angels, they're not like us. They're not separated from God by this physical world. They can be fully in the presence of God. They have seen God. And yet they sit there and go, oh my goodness, God just left his throne, went to earth, took on human form. This is amazing. And they're peering into this. That's how beautiful. That's how 
powerful this is. This is the gospel. And this is what Peter puts forth to his friends to say, don't get zoomed in on the struggle. Peer at this. That's what he says in verse six. In this, you rejoice. This gospel, you rejoice in this. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter's not trying to diminish the trials. He's not trying to say, ah, they don't matter. No, they matter. He knows what struggle is like. He's saying, you got to zoom out though, away from that. But then did you notice a couple of things? They're for a little while. They're for a time. It's not forever. And then he also says, it, I don't want to screw it up. He also says, uh, it's for a time. Then it has a purpose. Go to verse 7. He says that, it is, that these trials are used by God for the testing of your faith. In other words, God has allowed this to come into your life. Because it is going to do something in you. He's going to work in you. So he puts this gospel forward. This is your motivation to keep climbing that hill. Because the climb, God is going to do something through it. And so he wants you to keep going. He wants you to keep going at it. Keep going for the gospel. James, the brother of Jesus, said something very, very similar in his letter. He writes a very similar letter. It's sent to a group of people spread out, but they're living in a different region. region. And as he starts his letter off, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, there it is, produces steadfastness. It produces endurance. It helps you to persevere. And you've got to let that steadfastness have its full effect. Because when you do, then you'll become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I just had the opportunity to teach a group of middle school students, and I used that verse. And I just paused, and I said... Let me just ask you guys the most obvious Sunday school question possible. Who is the only person to have ever lived who was perfect and complete? And they all began to chuckle and laugh. And then finally one boy got brave enough to say out loud, Jesus. And yet if you notice what James, the brother of Jesus is saying, is that God is going to use these struggles, he's going to use these trials to mold you and shape you to make you become perfect and complete. In other words, to become like Jesus. You will become at the, you will achieve the top of the hill. You'll be like him and you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And the view will be amazing. But to get there, we've got to keep climbing. We can't just have the uphill desires. We also have to be willing to engage in the uphill struggle. When an athlete uh, wants to achieve something great. They envision themselves on the medal stand going after the gold medal. But then they get caught in the workout. And it's hard. Their coach is yelling at them. They're out of breath. They're sweating. They don't know if they can do it. If they zoom in on the struggle and the trial, they're probably going to give up. They're probably going to quit. But if they keep in their mind the gold, if they envision themselves standing on top of the medal stand, they can go one more round. They can get up and keep going. They'll take a drink and they're after it again. Because there's something greater. There's something more worth it. And if you ever begin to struggle, you start looking at this gospel. 
And this gospel says, not only is Jesus worth it, but you can look at Jesus himself. Because the author of Hebrews says, in verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see what he's saying? Rather than get zoomed in on your problem, get zoomed in on this issue, instead, zoom in on Jesus. Look at him. Because as you look at him, you see someone who had every excuse in the world to get zoomed in on his problems. As he's in that garden the night before he's uh, arrested and crucified, he is praying, he's sweating, he's actually sweating blood. And he's saying, God, take this cup from me. But then he says, but not my will be done, but yours. He submits, he goes, and he works through it. And through that comes our salvation. You see, the joy that was set before Jesus was you. It was God's people. He loved you so much that he was willing to endure the cross so that he could have you, so that your sins could be forgiven. You could come into a relationship with him and the Father and the image of God within you could begin to be restored so that he could continue to mold you and shape you into that image so that you will love like him and live like him. So don't let yourself get caught up in the Zuma of the struggle. Don't get caught up in the Zuma of your comfort. Don't get caught up in the Zuma of others' opinions of you. Instead, zoom in on the gospel. Look to Jesus because that will give you the big picture that God is at work and you always have hope. I saw this lived out just very recently. A friend of mine called. Turns out her husband did something really, really stupid. I'm really stupid. Like, in trouble with the law. Uh, It's going to cost them financially. Uh, It's bad. Uh, But as I talked with her, I didn't sense a lot of anger. And honestly, it surprised me. Because I I expected if anyone had a reason to kind of zoom in on the problem, she had it. I mean, this was fresh as we talked you know, she should have been upset. I mean, her husband is in trouble with the law. It's now going to cost them a ton of money. I mean, just all the ramifications. And yet, she was incredibly calm. It, It really surprised me. And the more we talked, I began to figure out what was going on. It's because she had allowed herself to keep a gospel identity. If she had wrapped herself up in her identity as a wife, oh, this is bad. I mean, he made her look bad. This, this is going to put a strain on their relationship. Other people will think, oh my goodness, you're, you're married to him who did that. But she wasn't worried about that. Her heart was for her husband. You could sense this love for him. And instead of getting mad, she was focused on Jesus. She was focused on what God was going to be doing in her husband. What he wanted to do in her kids. What God was going to do even in her I realized she kept her eyes on Jesus and that's what carried her through and prevented her from getting caught in Azuma. So that's why I want to ask you, what problem, what trial, what struggle have you been zoomed in on? Is it yourself? Is it your job? Is it school? Friendships? Health? A loved one? What have you been zoomed in on that's actually keeping you from moving uphill? Now, what is it that God's saying? I want you to change. I want to do this differently. And so here's my gospel. Here it is. Would you peer at this? Would you look at this and let it give you the guts to keep going? 
so that you can step back and actually see this in perspective and you can have hope return. So today, my prayer is that some of you who may be struggling, you, you may feel like you don't have any hope. You, you don't see how this can end. God's saying, look at me. Let me bring perspective because I got this. I'm in control. I'll take care of it. So today for you, it might be a moment of surrender. It might be a moment of trust. It might just be handing it over, saying, God, I've been trying to hang on to it myself and it's consuming me. Today, we're going to spend some time in prayer. And we're going to celebrate communion. And as we do, I just want you to take that time to worship. I want you to take that time to talk to God. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I just want you to say, I'm glad you are here. That We started Riverwood Church for you, by the way. This is for you. Because what we want is to present Jesus to you so that you would then find him and begin to follow him. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, when we pass these elements, I'm just going to ask that you let them just pass. Because for you, the more important thing is not whether you eat some bread or you drink some juice. The important thing for you is who is Jesus? Because today, I believe that God is calling you to put your attention and your focus on him. So would you look at Jesus today? Would you talk to him? Today, September 18th, could be your birthday. This could be the day that you were born again. It could be the day when now your eyes are open to the power and the beauty of the gospel. And you now have that, mo that motivation to keep going, to keep climbing. Because you may have thoughts and dreams for your life, what you want it to look like. And today God is saying, I want to rescue you from that dream. And I want to give you my dream for your life. Because he can see you for who you are and what he wants to do through you. And so if that's you, then I'm going to encourage you to talk to God. To let these elements pass by. And that you would just focus on Jesus. Telling him something like this. God, I realize I've been living for myself. I'm a sinner. And yet I now understand that Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that I could be born again. I could be raised from the spiritual dead and I could come into spiritual life. So Jesus, because you gave your life for me, I now give my life to follow you. If you're here today and you've been following Jesus, whether that be just for a day or, or longer, then I encourage you to take the elements. That when you take that bread, you'll remember that this is the body of Christ which was broken for us. You're going to take and eat in remembrance of him. And then when we pass the cup, you're going to take that and drink. Today we're passing the elements because I want us to take it together as one body. So I am going to ask that you would hold on to those elements and we will partake of that together. If you also need gluten-free, that's going to be in the tray. But if you don't need gluten-free, I'm going to ask you to take from the regular bread and save the gluten-free bread for those that do need it. But let's do this now. Let's do this in remembrance of him. Let's zoom in on him. So Father, as we come to this table, I pray you'd help us to just zoom in on Jesus, that he would be the, the central focus of our life. And whatever issues or problems that were going on, that we wouldn't try to just set them aside, but instead we'd bring them forward to you. That we'd present this to you and say, God, help me with this. Because I don't know what to do. My loved one's sick. I'm, I'm struggling in this relationship. I don't know what to do about my job. And in the midst of this, God, as we lay it down, would you just flood us with your presence? Would you give us your peace? Your, your scriptures describe a peace that surpasses understanding. So God, would you give that to us now? Would you use these elements to help us to see Jesus? To see that he went and died our death in our place. That his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. That we didn't have to die for our sin. That he took the punishment so that he could offer us life. 
Lord, I pray for anyone here today that does not know you, that today would be their birthday, that they would be born again, that they would talk to you right now and just express that. And that we would get the joy of knowing that you have brought another one into your family, into your fold, and you're gonna do something great in them and through them. So Father, would you just be with us now? Thank you for your presence that's here. May we just enjoy this time of worshiping you and would you just help us to see your imperishable, undefiled, and unfading gospel and that we would rejoice in that today no matter what struggle, no matter what trial we're facing right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.